if I was to tell you that the worst haircut in the world was a haircut you get at plebe summer at the Naval Academy, I would be lying to you. The worst haircut you could possibly get is a Marine Corps high and tight. I love my Marines. I've had great interactions with them overseas, but let's be honest, fellas, ladies, the worst haircut in the world is a Marine Corps high and tight. I appreciate the dedication for all those guys who are retired, did 20, 30 years in the Corps and still are maintaining a high and tight at 65 years old. Usually they're also very tan with leathery skin and somehow have managed to keep up their workouts, which is laudable, I agree. But for goodness sake, let go of the haircut. That being said, the second worst haircut in the world is a haircut you get at plebe summer at the Naval Academy. <laughs> there, there is no regard for style and it's a pretty basic no guard haircut all the way around, which can work for some guys. But when you're 18 years old and sweaty all the time, barely out of puberty, it's not going to do you any favors. The freshmen at the Naval Academy are called plebes, P-L-E-B-E, for those of you who can only speak in military phonetic alphabets, which I pity you. That's Papa, Lima, Echo, Bravo, Echo. A plebe is a term from Roman times. It were those free people in society who weren't citizens. So they were not slaves, but they were also not Roman citizens and did not get the benefits of citizenry. The first summer before you start your freshman year is called plebe summer. West Point and Air Force Academy and Merchant Marine Academy and probably the Coast Guard Academy all have similar summers before your freshman year. They all suck, of course. They don't suck nearly as bad as some other things. They don't suck nearly as bad as Marine Boot Camp. They don't suck nearly as bad as basic underwater demolition SEAL training. But plebe summer sucks enough, especially for people right out of high school. After that haircut, the first thing you're trained to do is get a brace which is this really disgusting sort of movement you're supposed to make with your head, that your head and chin go back and your neck sort of folds under your chin. It is the most awkward and degrading pose someone can make you have standing up in a uniform. Other features of that plebe summer that I had in 1996 is that there was no air conditioning in Annapolis, Maryland, which is, you can consider that DC for those of you who, have, who haven't been in Annapolis. And DC was built on a swamp. So even though it's in the mid-Atlantic, it's not in Florida where I'm from, it does get quite hot there. Bancroft Hall is the, or at least at that time was, the biggest single dormitory in the world. I am sure that China has surpassed that. I vaguely recall mentioning that before on this podcast. I apologize if I did. Sixth Wing was one of eight wings of Bancroft Hall. And on the second deck of Sixth Wing, there was a tile floor. And that floor would get so slippery with sweat while we were doing push-ups that it was hard to keep your hands in one place because your hands would slip on the mixture of your and all of your fellow plebes, sweat dripping down from your faces. When we weren't doing push-ups, we were running or memorizing all sorts of naval 
aphorisms and rules. Some of those things were useless or merely stories and history of the Navy. However, there actually were a lot of useful things we learned. And one of the biggest things they want you to learn as a plebe and as a midshipman, I think it's probably stressed a little less than the army because the army's focused more on some things like leadership and tactics, which is uh, something I wish the Naval Academy would replicate. Perhaps they have in the 20 years since I graduated. One thing the Naval Academy stresses a lot is the ability to memorize things and hold them in your head. And the justification for this is that when you're on watch on a ship, there are so many things you need to keep in your head and be aware of at one time. You really do need a mind that can hold all those things in. The same would be true of commercial pilots, air traffic controllers, surgeons, or trial lawyers. You can imagine a lawyer before the Supreme Court arguing a constitutional question. If you've ever listened to those hearings, the lawyers are able to maintain an amazing amount of arguments, counter-arguments, points that they need to hit while they're before the court. And yes, they could write some things down. They might have a fellow lawyer next to them, perhaps whispering in their ear. But for the most part, these guys and ladies exhibit an extraordinary ability to just speak directly from the list of things in their mind. Often, these aphorisms that were delivered to us were delivered in a book called Reef Points. But also, sometimes when we weren't being tortured in the hallways with physical activity or interrogated about what we knew and what we memorized. Did we know what the dessert was for evening meal? No, I don't fucking know, but apparently it's important because this person is yelling at me. When we weren't doing those things, sometimes there were some quiet moments. I think these quiet moments were as much for us as they were for the instructors. The midshipmen just two years older than us who were putting us through this kind of fraternity rush ritual known as plebe summer. Anyway, they get tired too. And so sometimes we'd have something akin to story time. I distinctly remember one particularly hot summer afternoon in mid-July and Miss Callahan was sitting in a chair at the end of the hallway with all of us sweaty, disgusting, tired, yet eager plebes sitting around in a school circle around her. It must have been quite the sight for someone if they had come from, let's say, University of Florida and seeing all of us sitting there like kindergartners, it would be a bizarre sight indeed. That afternoon, Miss Callahan read to us Message to Garcia by Albert Hubbard, 1899. But he has nothing to do with this. Right, why don't you give me his number? You know, Hopper, he has nothing to do with this. Trust Joyce, me. Joyce, 99 out of 100 times, kid goes missing. The kid is with a parent or a relative. What about the other time? What? You said 99 out of 100. 
What about the other time? Joyce. The one. The one. Joyce, this is hard. If you Google message to Garcia, you'll find a lot of interpretations about it. But what you won't find is a lot of direct quotes, probably, from the work. And here at The Warrior Poet, we'd rather not rely on secondhand accounts when we can see the firsthand account or the original writing. And so in this case, the message to Garcia by Edward Hubbard is not that long. It's just a couple small print pages long. Additionally, one of the reasons that I want to talk about this today is because part of the principles, part of the takeaways from Message to Garcia come from experience in a culture that quotes it a lot, that mentions the name of the work as a refrain or as a compliment or as a rebuke without any other elaboration needed. And so my goal here today is to correct what are, in my view, misinterpretations of Message to Garcia. Perhaps the best way to start this conversation about Message to Garcia is to read some actual parts of the work by Albert Hubbard from 1899. It's actually available in PDF. I'll link to it in the show notes. If you want something that has more of an introduction, say on your Kindle with some descriptions that may countermine, I will link to that in the show notes as well. Shout out to a podcast called Skeptoid, which I really like. If you like hearing about things like the Bermuda Triangle, Area 51, but you have a scientific mind, perhaps, you might really appreciate Skeptoid. I will not try at this time to do a voice like that when he quotes original sources as I read to you from Albert Hubbard's message to Garcia. In all this Cuban business, there is one man stands out on the horizon of my memory, like Mars at perihelion. When war broke out between Spain and the United States, it was very necessary to communicate quickly with the leader of the insurgents. Garcia was somewhere in the mountain fastnesses of Cuba. No one knew where. No mail or telegraph could reach him. The president must secure his cooperation and quickly. Someone said to the president, there's a fellow by the name of Rowan. We'll find Garcia for you if anybody can. Rowan was sent for and given a letter to be delivered to Garcia. How, quote, the fellow by name of Rowan took the letter, sealed it up in an oilskin pouch, strapped it over his heart in four days, landed by night off the coast of Cuba from an open boat, disappeared into the jungle, and in three weeks came out on the other side of the island, having traversed a hostile country on foot and having delivered his letter to Garcia are things I have no special desire now to tell in detail. The point I wish to make is this. McKinley gave Rowan a letter to be delivered to Garcia. Rowan took the letter and did not ask, where is he at? By the eternal, there is a man whose form should be cast in deathless bronze and a statue placed in every college in the land. It is not book learning young men need, nor instruction about this or that but a stiffening of the vertebrae, which will cause them to be loyal to a trust, to act promptly, concentrate their energies, do the thing, carry a message to Garcia. And those were selected passages from Message to Garcia. I only skipped a little bit in the beginning. The actual work goes on for 
about double that length, maybe triple tops. Uh, it's mostly just lauding Garcia and Albert Hubbard saying what he would like to see in a person, young man or young woman now, straight from college perhaps or straight from high school at that time in 1899, going into work and how they should approach their work. Now, there are a few things to note here. One is the wording of this piece is a little bit ridiculous. I think even for 1899, I am not a classic literature scholar by any means. However, I've read a decent amount of things from over the past few hundred years and translations of things that are older. And the opening sentence where he talks about the horizon of his memory standing out like Mars at perihelion, I think is how you pronounce it. I probably mispronounced it earlier, which means I think the closest a planet can be to the sun. I'm not sure how many people are supposed to get this metaphor about Mars at perihelion. Uh, Apparently it stands out, but I've never seen it there. There's also the very, very long run-on sentence about how the fellow by the name of Rowan took the letter, did this, did that, hopped on a boat, four days, Cuba, disappeared in the jungle, weeks came out, having traversed country on foot, all this stuff, delivered the letter. And the way he closes that sentence is, these are things I have no special desire now to tell in detail. I don't know about you, but that seems to be the best part of the story. That sounds like Apocalypse Now or the original book that inspired Apocalypse Now, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And uh, the, the book, Heart of, Heart of Darkness, and the movie, Apocalypse Now, are both classics, and you should read and watch now, each. We're all his children. Could we uh, talk to Colonel Kurtz? Hey, hey man, you don't, uh, you don't talk to the Colonel. Uh, um, well, well, you listen to him. Uh, the man's enlarged my mind. Uh, uh, he's a poet, warrior in the, in the classic sense. Uh, I mean, sometimes he'll, uh, well, you say hello to him, right? And uh, he'll just walk right by you and uh, he won't even notice you. And then some, suddenly he'll grab you and he'll, he'll throw you in a corner and he'll say, do you know that if is the middle word in life? If you can keep your head- But again, that, that sounds like the most amazing story ever. I, like, I would love to see a movie of this now. Cast your favorite actor. Tom Hardy has had a great 10, 15 years now. He, he could work or you could follow the path of a lot of war movies lately where they cast people who are kind of no names, at least no names in America. They might be very famous in the UK or Australia, but nevertheless, I, I actually kind of like that technique of great story, great movie where you've never really seen that person before. There's a certain authenticity that comes with that. 1917 is reminiscent of the message to Garcia. 1917 has some new faces, but it has some old ones too. Old names, you know, like Richard Madden from Game of Thrones or Mark Strong, actually born Marco Giuseppe Salusolia, Salusolia, an English actor who's been in a ton of good things such as Sherlock Holmes, and he also played a character, George, in Zero Dark Thirty, which is great. He was in The Imitation Game. He was in a couple of the Kingsman movies, which 
just seem like garbage to me. I, I apologize. I'm saying that having not seen them. But caveat, I have seen them about a thousand times on planes, granted without sound and piecemeal scene by scene on different flights. Uh, those movies look absolutely horrible. Just saying. He was also in, this is Mark Strong we're talking about. He was also in an amazing movie called Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. If you haven't seen it, just stop listening to me and watch it right now. If you're an influencer and supposedly podcasters are influencers, I don't like calling myself that because it sounds stupid. But if you're an influencer, you're not supposed to direct people to other places. I won't be offended. You could leave me forever right now as long as you watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, I'm good with it. He played Jim Prito in that and, and very well at that. Finally, you've got Colin Firth who needs no introduction and plays a general, the guy who gives the main character the message to bring to the other unit that is walking into a trap. And the alien himself also needs no introduction, Benedict Cumberbatch. Little footnote here. We usually save them for the all the way wet section. You've also got Andrew Scott in this movie. He is the guy who plays Moriarty in the same series that Benedict Cumberbatch is in playing Sherlock Holmes. Amazing to get them back together. And Andrew Scott is immensely talented as an actor. Granted, he's mostly in these sort of side roles, but I love watching him. He's kind of a Colin Farrell-esque guy without perhaps the, the lead power. Um, well, my name's Mike, short for Michael. Maybe we can call you L, short for 11. I should note that the reason Edward Hubbard is reluctant to go into detail about how the message actually got to Garcia is because his whole story is bullshit. Yes, I said it. Many of the listeners to The Warrior Poet are former military people. Granted, I think we have a good balance by all indications, which is great. Some of you military folks may have cut your teeth, earned your stripes, all the metaphors we could add here to Message to Garcia. It probably inspired you. Some of you are in the workforce now, acting with tons of determination and initiative and autonomy, whether granted or not, as you do your jobs. And you probably stand in words Edward Hubbard would use as beacons of example to all folk around you or something crappy in style like that. But the whole story is apparently BS. Uh, I shouldn't say the whole story, but the way he depicts it. In that, apparently this guy, Rowan, did not use as much initiative and determination as is made out there. He apparently was supposed to stay in the jungle and send reports back from Garcia to American forces. Instead, he stayed for, I think, less than 24 hours, missed home, and ended up leaving. Additionally, the whole passage was already mapped out for him. You can imagine what a CIA operation would look like now or a special operations operation. Sorry to be redundant there. A soft operation, as we would call it, would look like now where 
a lot of things are planned out where you have lines of logistics, lines of communication, where you have supporting assets. That's not to say that initiative is important. That's not to say that the uncertain doesn't happen. That's not to say that very complex missions aren't assigned to you in the modern day real world. That being said, Rowan did not just make his way into the jungle where no one knew where he was at, nor did he do so alone. He was escorted by these insurgents, I believe they were, who knew exactly where they were going. They were going directly to Garcia and they were protecting Rowan as he went because naturally Garcia wanted American support. So they were going to protect this guy, Rowan. That is all to say that Elbert Hubbard, I think I called him Edward Hubbard earlier. That's all to say that Elbert Hubbard is being quite disingenuous when he says, these are details I don't care to tell you right now, dear reader. Are you an assassin? I'm a soldier. You're neither. You're an errand boy. Sent by grocery clerks. To collect a bill. Albert Hubbard has... Some good points here, actually, even though, to be honest, Message Garcia is more of a rant than anything. He says here, if you ask a clerk to go, let's say, please look in the encyclopedia and make a briefer memorandum for me concerning the life of Correggio. I don't know about you, but I consider myself pretty learned. I have no idea who Correggio is. I think he's an author, maybe. It'd be pretty ridiculous for a business person to go to someone and say, hey, I'd like you to prepare a memorandum on Picasso for me. <laughs> I think they'll, they'll think you're pretty crazy. Uh, but this is uh, apparently some, something Albert Hubbard values in an employee. But he makes some good points here. The, he, he makes the point that, will the clerk quietly say, yes, sir, and go do the task? On your life, he will not. And I'm quoting, of course. He will look at you out of a fishy eye. I would too, Albert. And ask one or more of the following questions. Who was he? Which encyclopedia? Where's the encyclopedia? Was I hired for that? Don't you mean Bismarck? What's the matter with Charlie doing it? Is he dead? Is there any hurry? Shan't I bring you the book and let you look it up yourself? What do you want to know for? This is indicative of both the genius of Albert Hubbard's story here, Message to Garcia, and the flaws. The flaws here are that in the military and in special operations, especially, it's special operations, especially, it's particularly important to understand commander's intent. If you are to go into the field, you need to understand why you're risking your life and why you're risking the lives of your men. This is for many reasons. This is because you are a thinking individual. This is because you are a leader. And this is because uncertain scenarios might present themselves where you actually need to understand what you're trying to accomplish and why. Because perhaps there's a better way to accomplish the why. Those of you who might be in product management and technology understand this viscerally. A product manager doesn't just 
go do what someone else tells them to do. They don't just do what the customer asks for. You understand the why. Designers out there understand this even better than product managers. Someone in this position of this clerk who's been asked to write a brief memorandum concerning the life of Correggio Probably in the modern age, I don't know about 1899, but in the modern age, they would have some idea about the mission of the company and what that company, enterprise, nonprofit is trying to accomplish. Chances are it's not doing biographies of medieval or Renaissance figures. It's trying to serve some other present purpose to improve lives, create value, and earn a profit. No. So the, the, the clerk or person in this position of a random task, I think random task was the name of a character in Austin Powers, I'm not mistaken. So random task will no doubt look out at Albert Hubbard with a fishy eye. That being said, there are lots of great reasons why the military, and I'm guessing it's the Marine Corps who latched onto this story. I don't know why, just an intuitive sense. But there's a lot of reason why the military has adopted this story and used it to great effect. And it is that the default position of a lot of people is to ask too many questions. It's to assume that there's no good reason for doing this thing. It's to assume that it's too much work. It's to assume that the task is impossible. The default is to assume also that one does not have the autonomy to accomplish the task. Moreover, often there's little to creativity applied to an endeavor. There's no determination. And so, despite the numerous flaws in the message to Garcia story, it really is a story about determination. On the other hand, initiative is a little bit a question mark for me with message to Garcia. Because on the one hand, in order to solve getting this message to Garcia, let's just assume Hubbard's story is truthful and accurate. In order to get that message to General Garcia in the middle of the jungle in Cuba, where no one knows where he is, without a clear plan of action dictated to Rowan, Lieutenant Rowan, I think he was a lieutenant. And by the way, there really was a Lieutenant Rowan, and he did carry a message. Lieutenant Rowan did have to figure out a lot of things on the way. Even if we assume the actual true scenario, Lieutenant Rowan would have had to figure out tons of things that had to be figured out on the fly. So, was the main character an intrepid hero? Perhaps, yes. They exhibited the characteristics of someone as a leader and as an employee that we would like to see. That being said, there are aspects of this scenario in Message to Garcia that fall short of full initiative. I think the military likes to interpret this story as one of pure initiative, but that is not exactly the case. Rowan was assigned this mission to go take the letter there. True initiative would be even more than that. 
it would be coming up with some other plan or objective to achieve something in furtherance of a strategic goal. Getting a message to Garcia is not a strategic goal. Getting a message to Garcia is barely at the level of tactics. When I was in Iraq in 2007, I was part of a joint task force conducting combat operations in furtherance of what was at least articulated to us as the highest strategic priority for the United States at the time. I wore two hats. One was to run an operation center when guys were out in the field. The other was to serve as an officer in the field, either as what's called ground force commander, which means you're in charge of essentially the entire mission and all assets, both yours, meaning SEAL team assets, as well as planes, tanks, anything else on the ground, and sometimes to be a supporting officer in the field. So let's call that two and a half hats. I remember being once in the operations center and no one was outside the wire conducting an operation. And we had intelligence on a target and we knew where he was. And this was a very strategic target. This is one of our highest priorities. And no one had called in an airstrike. The United States is a big country. And we have a lot of assets at our disposal. And I remember walking in after a few other people had been there and asking if the F-16s were on their way. And the response I got back from a senior officer there was, you think? Meaning, you think someone should call them? And uh, that's to indicate not that I'm amazing, but just that the default position of many people is not to take that initiative of a brand new plan, a brand new objective in furtherance of a strategic goal. I suspect that this has gotten worse over time in the private sector and in government and the military. I sense that there was a time where communication was not as real time between control and the people actually doing the work. By the way, Tinker Terrible Soldier Spy referenced earlier, control is one of the coolest words and characters in that movie. Information. Where did you get this? I didn't. Percy and his little cabal walked in with it. Look, control. Shut up. The point is that in the time of Lawrence of Arabia, which if you haven't listened to T.E. Lawrence's The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, it's interesting both historically as well as for other sort of philosophical or self-help reasons for anyone who wants to succeed in uncertain environments. I'll link to it in the show notes. There was a time where in India, the Middle East, in the British Empire, as well as countless periods through history where military units, ambassadors, government assets, and even private sector people, think the East India Company, people going on certain trade routes by foot, by camel, there needed to be a lot of latitude and authority placed in that person who is going into the field. That person would need to understand the strategy and come up with creative ways to create value and further the mission. Even in modern warfare or back to World War II, 
probably way before that, there's this concept of a target of opportunity. So you can imagine an air unit out conducting some sort of bombing raid or close air support. They come upon a facility or an enemy unit that they weren't actually targeting in the beginning. This is known as a target of opportunity. That represents initiative if that person is to pursue that target. Just as in any business where there's a certain mission to create value for customers in a certain way, there are all sorts of targets of opportunity along the way. That's really what I want you, listener of the Warrior Poet, to go after. Albert Hubbard's message to Garcia, that's table stakes. That's what's expected out of any employee is to go after something without a lot of micromanagement. But what's really wanted out of a leader is to pursue things in a creative way, in a way that viscerally wants to achieve the goal better, faster, and deeper than anybody else. And now is that time of the program where we get all the way wet. All the way wet is, of course, what a basic underwater demolition seal instructor might tell some wannabe seals. Of course, it's easy to be a frogman on a sunny day. And it's spring here. We're getting closer to sunny days. So get out there. Get some action while you can. Be ready come winter again. Footnote number one. I love Stranger Things. I don't see how anyone over the age of, let's say, 30, could not love Stranger Things. And so a few of those fills you heard throughout the episode were from Stranger Things and specifically surrounding the character Eleven. Eleven is one of the most badass characters ever. And Lieutenant Rowan apparently wasn't so badass. He had a lot of help along the way, and he wanted to go home to mommy after a few hours with General Garcia. I don't think Eleven would do that. Neither would Mike or any of the other characters. Number two, no. L. Ron Hubbard is not a descendant of Elbert Hubbard. Apparently, there was a lot of speculation, and L. Ron Hubbard apparently used the name of Elbert Hubbard because a lot of people were familiar with him to gain notoriety and to bolster his public image even to the extent that L. Ron Hubbard quoted and talked about Message to Garcia a lot. But apparently there is no evidence that L. Ron Hubbard, the, I think he's the father of Scientology. He's definitely one of the major proponents. He wrote this book that used to be in infomercials or in ads all the time called Dianetics in the 80s and 90s. And by the way, those ads ran during kids' programs. So I don't know what the hell they were trying to do. And final footnote. If you are at all interested in American history, and granted to our Norwegian listeners, I'll totally understand if you care very little about American history. But for anybody interested in the Civil War, you will come across a general named Winfield Scott, and he's depicted rather heavily in the book The Killer Angels, and it's an amazing book. Apparently, there is some controversy about the author supposedly having served in Vietnam. Apparently, he did not actually go over there. So it's a case of stolen honor. I haven't totally looked this up, but I have it on 
pretty good authority that there was some controversy there. That being said, The Killer Angels is an amazing book that really makes the Civil War come to life. There is a Winfield Scott training facility that used to be at the Presidio in San Francisco. There's one particular person who ended up there for training. That person had stolen his mother's car. This is in 1960. And his punishment was forced to join the army. He spent most of his time, quote unquote, at his leisure. That's from Wikipedia. Missing roll call and accruing several counts of being absent without leave. Apparently, he was given a general discharge in 1960. Lucky for him that he didn't end up going to Vietnam and lucky for us all. That person was Jerry Garcia, born Jerome John Garcia in 1942. Lead guitarist and sort of lead man for the Grateful Dead. I was never into the dead that much. I've probably appreciated them more over time. Whereas I think most people probably get into them very young because their parents are into them or maybe during college is the right time. Of course, I went to the Naval Academy, so. I have to go home. We're almost there. Sorry, man. Curfew. Come on, let's go. Good luck. <laughs> Curfew at four? They're lying. It's been like this all summer. It's romantic. It's gross. It's bullshit. I do love the millennials listening to this podcast, but Jerry Garcia was not named after Cherry Garcia. The Ben and Jerry's flavor. Uh, quite the contrary. <laughs> Jerry Garcia was named as one of the greatest guitarists of all time by Rolling Stone. Now, before we get there, I just need to say that two of my favorite guitarists are in the hero images for this story, that being Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix, the two Jimmies. Jerry Garcia is listed at number 46. I think the write-up of Jerry Garcia in this article is pretty awesome. It says that most people who play the blues are very conservative. They stay a certain way. Jerry Garcia was painting outside the frame. He makes blues with bluegrass and Ravi Shankar. I'm half Indian, so I appreciate the Ravi Shankar influence. There are countless songs that exhibit Jerry Garcia's abilities. And again, I'm not a Grateful Dead connoisseur, so I will accept any constructive feedback you will give me at Shri the Warrior Poet on Instagram. I'd love to connect with you there and understand what your favorite Grateful Dead song is or your favorite Jerry Garcia song is because he had his own solo projects or projects outside of the Grateful Dead. One particular one that I love, shout out to one of my buddies from the Naval Academy. One of them is 11, which is in 11-8 time. I won't try and replicate that time by voice right now. You'll just have to console yourself with listening to the wonder that is 11. Jerry Garcia definitely painted outside the frame. I hope that you as a leader paint outside the frame way more than Lieutenant Rowan bringing that message to Garcia. He had plenty of help along the way. He had a mission assigned to him. Whereas you need to come up with where you want to go and how you can take your organization, whether you're at the top of the food chain or way at the bottom, how you can take that organization to the next level and create value that no one saw coming.
No, 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 no. Kevin, me na dua. Spita. <laughs>